Welcome to the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Podcast. My name is Natalie Nidham. I'm a nutritionist, a human potential, and epigenetic coach, and I created this podcast to bring you the latest ways to take control of your health and longevity. We cover it all, from new technology to ancestral health practices, personalized interventions, and a very special interest of mine, peptides. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to the show, guys. Today's guest is a favorite on this show. This is his third time here, and this is probably one of the most anticipated episodes that I've had in a while. His name is Caleb Greer. He is a nurse practitioner in Austin, Texas, and well, I got to tell you guys, he's brilliant. If he could be my doctor, he would be my doctor. So instead, I send as many people as I can to him (laughs) because I'm in Canada and he can't be my doctor. But our topic today is the new darling of the fat loss world. We're talking about terzepatide, which is Munjaro. Uh, Munjaro by Eli Lilly is terzepatide. It's a GLP-1 and G1P agonist, and it is a peptide that is, by all accounts, pretty magical at helping people to lose unwanted weight. It is FDA approved for type 2 diabetes and obesity, But of course, people have figured out that this can be really, really helpful for fat loss, especially for people who are really, really stuck. There's cautions, of course, and there's always going to be things that we have to watch out for. There's no free passes in life, but this is probably the closest thing to fat loss holy grail that's come in a long, long time. And I think we probably talk a little bit about semaglutide as well, which was its precursor. Uh, Terzepatide hit the market this past summer of 2022. Semaglutide's been out for a lot longer than that. Anyway, I'm going to talk, I'm not going to talk about it. I'm going to let you guys check out the episode because that's where the goods are. Uh, If you're looking to get in touch with Caleb, he has just set up his new shop. He's out on his own and you will want to go to daysinhealth.org and days is D-A-S-E in I-N health, H-E-A-L-T-H.org. That'll be in the show notes anyway. Um, And that's the best way to get in touch with him. I mean, or set up an appointment or a call. He's pretty backed up, but hey, you never know. You could get lucky. If you want to get in touch with me, you know where to find me, natnidham.com. And of course, you can find me in the Mighty Networks BSP community, which I just launched uh, just in November. And it is an amazing community. Most importantly, it is private. It is not censored. We get to talk about whatever we want to talk about. So if you want to know more about that, you can go to my website, natnidham.com. And BSP community is a tab up at the top. You'll get to learn more. And of course, there's still the Facebook community, the Optimizing Superhuman Performance performance community. I'm there as well. Not quite as much, but it's still a vibrant community, you guys. But again, we have to be a little more careful what we talk about there. So without further ado, I'm going to let you hear from our sponsor and then get into the show. Enjoy. Today's sponsor is obsessed with mitochondria and their impact on how we age. Their research has shown that by supporting mitophagy, the process that our bodies use to reduce damaged mitochondria and make healthy ones, we can protect cells from cellular decline. Even more exciting, their research shows that supporting mitophagy in older adults, they were able to significantly improve muscle health and performance in just two months. And we can all agree that improving muscle performance and health is critical to longevity and healthy aging. 
So how did they do this? 10 years of research by the folks at Timeline Nutrition has resulted in the discovery of urolithin A, the active compound in Mitopure, a revolutionary supplement offered to you in three different forms that gives you a therapeutic dose of urolithin A. A delicious vanilla protein shake, my personal favorite, a berry powder you can add to yogurt and smoothies, or convenient capsules for travel. I personally love the three-month trial that allowed me to try all three of these. Within just two months, I could feel my gym workouts getting easier and my body responding to the effects of those healthier mitochondria. To try MitoPure for yourself, just go to TimelineNutrition.com forward slash Nat10 and use code Nat10 to save 10% off your order. And now let's get back to the show. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that all of the information presented in this podcast is for information purposes only. No medical advice, no diagnosing, no treatments suggested here. Before you try anything that you hear about or learn about here, make sure that you check with your medical provider. Welcome back to the show, Caleb Greer. It is a pleasure to be back here with you again. Hey, pleasure's all mine. Thanks, Nat. My pleasure, pleasure. It's all about pleasure today. All right. We are gathered here today to dig into, this is almost like a part two, right? We, at the beginning of the year, we did an episode on Ozempic, which is otherwise known as semaglutide, but more commonly known as Ozempic, it's brand name. And then I remember getting a really excited text from you. I think it was in May of this year saying, it's out. I'm like, what? What's out? Terzepatide. I'm like, what is that? And it's like, literally, you were like the kid, the first guy in line at the Apple store waiting for the new something to drop. And I, you're probably the first person who knew it was got FDA approval that day. And boom, you hit the road running with it. So we're going to be talking about both of those compounds today. All right. I'm ready. All right. Yeah, no, I'm really excited about it. So I figure what we would do is we would start with the more mature member of this family, which is semaglutide slash Ozempic, which how long has it been on the market? Like FDA approved? It's been around for a while, right now? I, I'm not actually really sure. I think maybe three, three years, four years. Okay. So, I mean, so there's a reasonable amount of track data on it from uh, from a clinical perspective, because... I actually wanted to ask you this, like when we read the report from the the manu- the drug company, let's say, and there's they are reporting back on all these metrics, how close is your clinical experience typically to what you're reading there? Like how how much divergence do you find there is? Like are they kind of glossing over some stuff typically or is it pretty true to what you see in clinic? How do you mean? Say that question again. I yeah, I mean, I, 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 there were too many words in that question. Basically, like when I read when I read the, um, I think it was it's Novos. Who's the um, Novonordisk? Novonordisk. When I read their whatever that document is, where they talk about some Ozempic and they talk about these are the clinical trials we did and this is what we saw and this is what happened. I, I, you know, they don't talk about some of the things that I've even seen in my group, right? So, and we talked about this before the podcast, like some of the things that I've seen in real life with Ozempic is that people sometimes hit a wall and they just stop losing weight or it, it seems to just not work as well for them anymore after a period of time. Or then you get the people where it doesn't actually work for them and it doesn't talk about that. Now, they're obviously not really going to lean too much into when it really doesn't actually work. And as you said before we started the podcast, like 
you know, you people might have lost 20 pounds in the study over a year, but they don't tell you that they lost it over the first six months. And then the second six months, they were kind of stuck. And I definitely have seen that. So I'm just wondering, like, like how much wiggle room do they have when they publish this data in terms of what's actually happening versus what we end up seeing in real life? So, I mean, really, it kind of just depends on the on how the clinical study is done, because I mean, they're looking at hard outcomes for the most part. They have these preset um, things that they're looking for when they try one of these drugs out. And obviously there's phase one and two studies before the phase three trials that they're, they kind of know what to look for to get the indication um, and, and so forth. But as far as what they report, I mean, unless they're kind of being inconsistent with their data, like it shouldn't be much different from what they actually see. Right. So they're going to report, you know, the adverse effects, how many people dropped out from those adverse effects. Um, but if people don't report something and they say, you know, oh, I, I forgot to tell them that, you know, I didn't lose any weight over the second half, you know, I don't think they're right. really diving into that. They just want to know, look, what's the drop in A1C first and foremost, because that's what they mostly cared about. Right. Also was kind of like a just added bonus. So, you know, until they kind of designated the the route for Wegovy and increasing the dose and really going after the weight loss benefits, um, you know, with those initial 2017, 2018 clinical trials, they were just looking at it as a diabetic agent that also had benefit with cardiovascular and renal protection and, and everything else that they kind of have touted as additional benefits to diabetics taking it. Right. Okay. So it was really about diabetes and, and it's evolved more or less. It's kind of evolved because word started to get around that, hey, my diabetic friend dropped 30 pounds using this medication. Right. Maybe I could just use it for weight loss. Um, and it's really evolving to now people are, are definitely able to get their hands on it for weight loss. Now, I think that in terms of approvals for insurance companies, you're not going to get you're not going to get to use this on an insurance's insurance company's dime if you've got ten pounds to lose. This is an obesity, an anti-obesity drug, right? Yep. So I'm pretty sure it's above twenty-seven for Asians and thirty for non-Asian Americans. Twenty-seven what? BMI. My yeah yeah yeah. Why would they differentiate between Asians and non-Asians? So because they have a visceral fat component that's more of a genetic thing, right? So they have they have more proclivity to be quote unquote skinny fat. And so they've actually developed a different BMI scale for people with uh, Asian ancestry because they store fat differently. That's so interesting. So they don't, so the bar is lower for them than it is for, for other people or higher, yeah. lower. So the BMI metric for overweight and obesity is less for Asian ancestry than it is for Caucasian or, you know, any other Interesting. You know, let's maybe do a quick recap on Ozempic in case people didn't listen to our first episode, which was in February of this year. You know, there's a lot, there's still a lot of misunderstanding around what Ozempic is and all of the potential benefits and even downsides. So, so in terms of black box warnings, there's really two black box warnings for Ozempic. One is a outside risk of thyroid cancer, which you were telling me earlier to date, we've yet to see in humans. It's really was only reported in the rat studies. And then the second one was a possibility of developing pancreatitis, which even in my limited experience in my community, I've seen a couple of people who've developed pancreatitis from using it. So have you seen this clinically as well? And, and in the cases that you've seen clinically, were you able even after the fact to say, oh, you know, 
this person, we might've guessed it because I don't know, like either they're a drinker or they have some other stressor on the pancreas that now as a clinician, you're saying, you're asking certain questions of people to try and get an understanding. Is there a chance, do you have a slightly higher chance of get developing pancreatitis? So yes, I have seen it right from an acute pancreatitis perspective. I mean, most people are not willing to try it again afterwards and we're not really, I wouldn't think so. (laughs) Yeah. So if you get pancreatitis and it's been confirmed with amylase or any of the other lipase type um, issues with, with the serum levels behind pancreatitis, it's a no go. Now looking for people that have a proclivity to develop pancreatitis, it's not always a good indicator because the GLP one class is actually it's, it's pro-regenerative for pancreatic tissue. So yeah, even though it does, contradiction there, right? Yeah. So even though it does kind of stress the pancreas and make it work harder, it also makes it work less than it's working for normal insulin responses from a diabetics um, diet and lifestyle, right? So it's working kind of overtime already, just because um, in the case of a diabetic, you know, they're releasing tons of insulin to get normal levels of blood sugar done. So it's already on overload giving the medication actually reduces the burden because, you know, when they're eating less, so they have a little bit of gut rest, they're, they're consuming less, they're losing weight. So there's less fatty infiltration in the pancreas. So overall, I think the net benefit is pancreatic health. And you just don't know. I mean, the people that have had pancreatitis have not been obese, right? So, and they have not had diabetes. So on that end of the spectrum, I would say that it's not really that likely for the population it's indicated for. Okay. So are you seeing maybe pancreatitis then when you're seeing it, it's in people who are probably wouldn't be according to, to the company, the drug company, they're not the right candidate for some gluten for Ozempic. They Correct. don't have enough weight to lose their HbA1c is not high enough. Like they're basically not di- diabetic or pre-diabetic. And so therefore it's putting somehow it's putting strain on the pancreas, even though on paper, the pancreas should be working less hard. True. Yep. So I don't know, you know, if they ended up doing a trial with normal individuals, they're just trying to lose, you know, 10 or 20 pounds, if there would be a higher incidence of pancreatitis in that population. I don't know, but it's, it's, it's an interesting thought to have. That is an interesting thought. And in those people, did you were, I mean, obviously you would have said it if you had, like, they're not necessarily drinkers. Nope. Nope. Neither of these two were drinkers. Okay. All right. On the flip side, I've had people that were heavy drinkers that did fine with it too. Shh, don't say that. I'm using it as an excuse to get people to stop drinking. <laughs> well, so in, in on that point, right, since it kind of reduces the hedonic aspect of lots of different things, right, so carb craving, alcohol craving, nicotine craving, any kind of craving you have, generally speaking, about 80%, I would say, of my population finds that they just lean on those things a lot less. So it doesn't make it to where you can't drink, but you might have a glass of wine or a cocktail and say, I'm good. That was, that was fine. I don't snowball into the next drink and the next drink and the next drink um, because of the impact of the GLP-1 class on central reward and motivational mechanisms. Yeah. So that's what I was going to ask you next is why is that? Why are the cravings going down? It's not, it's not a satiety thing when it comes to, to alcohol it's that central reward. Do you want to talk about that a tiny bit? How might do that? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, part of it is reducing overall energy requirement and expenditure, right? Cause there's just less of a driver to where hunger is not going to tip you over into one of these. Um, I need a quick fix. I'm emotionally, you know, unregulated or unstable or whatever it is. 
I need to go satisfy some of this uh, depression or withdrawal with something that's going to be a quick dopamine hit. And again, that's where it could also be alcohol. It could be sex. It could be food. It could be any number of those hedonic mechanisms. So the neurology responsible for that is this, um, this pathway between some subcortical systems that mediate dopamine release um, in the brainstem and then how that translates to how the frontal cortex and the working memory can actually say, well, when I get this feeling, typically it means I'm going to fall into these default kind of cracks. Mm-hmm. That gets disrupted with the GLP-1 by what that does in the nucleus, nucleus uh, accumbens and the ventral tegmental area. So just very similar to what, you know, for, for people that are smokers, like um, bupropion and naltrexone help mitigate the dopaminergic flux, like the up and down that sometimes people feel to be much more neutral. So they're less likely to dip below the threshold that instigates them to go and do something to increase their dopamine from a consumatory perspective. Hmm. Interesting. And so have you, have you even, have you looked at, you know, like there's a few different genes that we look at for dopamine, right? Like in, that regulate the density of dopamine receptors in the brain or how fast we break down dopamine. Have you have you looked at any of those things to see if people with certain variants might respond better or worse? Kind of. It's in the back of my head all the time, but from you kind a, of wonder. <laughs> from a temporal perspective, it's been hard. But it's also like I've had enough people to to come through and have you know the DRT or DRD two related SNPs and the COMTs and and all those different things, and it kind of means jack shit. So it's like. It's, it's an interesting thing to have in the back of my mind, but yeah. because, because, I mean, there's five different dopamine receptors. There's so much of the serotonin component to it. And then there's, you know, seven times three of those. I mean, there's just so much intricacy with yeah. neurological mechanisms and how these things work that it's the variability that you can attribute to the genetic aspects versus the environmental proclivities that led them to, you know, seek these poor coping strategies is more important to me. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. I mean, there's also, and I've al- I always say to people, there's so many redundancies in pathways, some of which we know and some of which we don't, that, you know, we're almost oversimplifying by looking at four SNPs and saying, oh, you have, you may be seeing this issue because it may not, it may be getting compensated for somewhere else. Um, right. Okay, so let's move to Ozempic and how well it works. It seems to me it works really well for some people and definitely... And then also your attitude where I've, again, I've seen in the group, I've seen people who never really go beyond 0.25 or 0.5 of a milligram once a week. And they, and they get the results that they're after. And very often they'll come back and say, well, you know, I'm still working my way up to the therapeutic dose. And I'm like, okay, this is not a vitamin mineral supplement that you're trying to bump up your stores of. Um, why not just stay at the lowest possible dose that where you're getting the effect that you want? Like there's no real reason to go higher. Nope. No, you want the minimally effective dose. And for some people, you know, they have this idea that more is better and faster is better and so forth, but that's really just not the case. And, you know, generally speaking, I do escalate my doses pretty quickly with people, you know, 0.25, if it works well in a week, go to 0.5 and go to one. So a lot of time I am trying to get to one for the acute phase of their therapy. But long-term, you do 0.25 once a week or 0.25 every two weeks, whatever can kind of manage your 
primary complaints, whether that's um, appetite suppression or increased, you know, caloric expenditure from, you know, your basal metabolic rate being higher. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's the end result for the most part. You know, even if people's appetite comes back, they eat less per meal. So there's still a caloric reduction there, but the main thing is that their metabolism still stays elevated, even if they're not using the same dose that was instigated, because that's, that's where the hypothalamic set point for energy expenditure and body fatness and leptin and adiponectin come into play. So do you feel like there's a reset that happens there or it's only a reset for as long as they're using even a tiny dose? It's a reset for as long as they're using it, but there's also a reset from the perspective of do they change their environment to match what they want from their actual metabolic rate and so forth. So if we can manage to get their diet to where their caloric intake is still somewhere along their basal metabolic rate, they're doing their resistance training, they're doing their HIIT, they're sleeping well, they're doing everything that they were already kind of doing well beforehand, but just not getting the weight loss, mm-hmm. then they auto correct, right? And so depending on how disciplined they can maintain, you know, this 80, 20% that I, that I aim them to do, um, most people don't have to jump back on it and they might use it more as a, Hey, Thanksgiving is coming up. I know I'm going to kind of go crazy with the pie. I'm going to start this for a month before that happens. Nice. Nice. So, okay. So that really dovetails into the next thing I was going to, I was wanted to talk about is, you know, how important it is for people to use this time when they're using, whether it's Ozempic or what we're going to talk about yet next Munjaro, like use this time where your, your drivers to overeat or eat the wrong things or whatever are diminished to build these better habits so that you eventually don't need it as badly or may be able to wean off completely. Correct. Yeah. So most people are like, you know, I don't want to take a drug to do this, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, look, you've done this for how long? You've been perfect with your diet. You've been perfect with your sleep. You've been perfect with your exercise. What do you expect to change here that's going to be different? Like your metabolism just working against you. And there's really nothing you can do except for you know, lots of ice baths and, and different modalities that people just aren't committed to doing um, or can't commit to doing because of availability of the resource. Or discomfort. So, Let's put it out there. Not everybody is willing to sit in an people, ice bath. I think most people <laughs> that I've asked to do an ice bath are, are gung-ho enough to do it. They just can't do it enough. Yeah. Um, but that being said, yes, you know, so when people nail down their lifestyle, which is an important piece. Yeah. And their blood work is very, you know, clean. There's no issues from a cardiometabolic perspective. Insulin is low. I mean, there's plenty of people that are just overweight that look super metabolically healthy. You would never think, right? Like I was for sure you'd have diabetes, right? For sure that you had at least insulin resistance or something else or high cholesterol, something that would indicate um, poor lifestyle, right? But yeah. A lot of people don't. And that's when they come, they're like, I've done everything right. Right. Why can't I lose weight? Yeah. Well, let's try this and see how it goes. So, yeah. So it's an assist, right? It's a lever that you kind of, you override the body, whatever body system is really preventing you from releasing that weight. Um, Yeah. And I I get it from people also sometimes, and not that I prescribe this stuff, but when we're talking about whether they're going to talk to their provider about getting a prescription for, and, and, you know, it's a little bit, 
it's like anything else. People, and I respect that. I mean, people are like, no, I should be able to do this on my own. And, and you're like, and to your point, you know, they've been struggling and working at it for so long. And how cool is it that we now have access to something that can really help them to move the needle with less effort in a way? Yeah, absolutely. And it, you know, it's not, it's not even a cheat. Now, some people, you know, just like we do with anabolics and, and testosterone and, and different hormones, some people just don't have the time or the discipline to do things right. Does that mean that they should go on and be unhealthy and be overweight and live exactly. to a detrimental quality of life? No. Right. Yeah. So if we can, if we can take and adjust that, you know, people are going to try their best and it's an opportunity cost, right? So what is the cost of continuing to be unhealthy if I don't help them in this manner? Right. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a lot higher where, you know, if they, take a shot once a week and they can maintain their appetite and eat better and do all these different things. Who, what do I care if they're using a tool instead of doing it on their own, you know, effort and discipline? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm all over that. I'm with you. So I have a question for you. Do either of the GLP one tools, and we'll talk about Munjaro in a minute, do they impact digestion like i i know that it slows down gastric emptying i know that it that it makes you feel fuller faster things slow down what about the secretion of hydrochloric acid like the actual digestion of food is there more of a challenge there and are you finding that people do better if you give them let's say digestive enzymes or hcl to take with their meals and not so much of course that it's going to drive reflux which can also be an issue but are you finding that there's maybe a bit more of a need for that? Yes, mostly because people, when they're overweight, they're going to have a reduction in, to begin with. Um, in, in, in both pancreatic and gastric secretions of, of their different um, peptidases and so forth. So I definitely think that because of the gastric emptying issue, that giving digestive enzymes with HCL and ox bile and all those different kinds of things are helpful because even if it sits in the stomach for a longer period of time, at least it's getting digested. And when it finally passes through, it's amino acids, it's fatty acids that are mostly lipolysized. And then, um, or, uh, and then, you know, that the carbohydrates are going to be broken down to a larger degree than, than they otherwise would be if there's not enough. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I would say that low hydrochloric acid and, and insufficient enzymes is kind of the state of the nation. Yeah. And, but to your point though, plenty of people are on, you know, acid reflux medications, whether it's a a PPI or an H2 blocker or just over the counters like Tums and, you know, educating them on the fact that, look, yeah, you don't have reflux, but you're not actually helping the problem is difficult because the reflux sucks so bad. Right. So yeah, someone that has to sit up at night because they can't sleep because if they go horizontal, they're going to burn their throat off. Yeah. Again, it's kind of this give and take where, all right, you can keep it up for a month just so we can address the weight and kind of hopefully reduce some of the, the, the push on the diaphragm. And if there's like an hiatal hernia, or if there's any issues organically that are causing the reflux, sometimes weight loss in general can help that heal. Yeah. It just takes the pressure off. Right. Yeah. And then like you the- give them the BPC and I have a whole get off PPI protocol with different things, but you know, we run that after the fact that they're on board and they're more excited about their changes. Yeah, for sure. And I think at this point, a lot of most people on PPIs have seen enough 
literature that said, or it's even come to them in discussion that long-term use, chronic use of PPIs really has some pretty significant health challenge, presents significant health challenges down the road, whether it's cardiovascular disease, bone health, whatever the case may be. So I, I have found over the last couple of years that people are a little bit more open to the dialogue of you know, like you said, using the PPI strategically when you really need it as a short term, which I think is what they were developed for initially was really a short term use, but then not to be leaned on for the next 10 years of their life. Very true. Yeah. Okay, so let's move on to the new kid on the block and how it's different than the not so old kid on the block. <laughs> yeah, I know. So I, I think I feel sh- I feel like I should preface that the semaglutide was still a blockbuster. You know, it's still, yeah. it's still a fantastic peptide. It does great work, but there have been, you know, these instances where I get caught up in my own pattern recognition and I start to be a little bit more biased than I should and say, look, this is going to be great. You're going to lose X amount of pounds and X amount of weeks. And you know, the side effects are this, this, and this, but here's my experience with how many people have that and so forth. And it just takes two or three people to come back and say, I didn't lose anything. I just threw up all day instead. Yeah, I got nothing. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, enough of that happened to where I was like, well, I'm just going to start presenting this more like I do anything where there's ups and downs, there's pros and cons, and there's um, risks and benefits that might include you not losing anything and just having adverse effects. Hey, folks, just a quick minute to thank our sponsor for this episode, Oxford HealthSpan, makers of Primadine, the only spermidine supplement that I personally use and recommend to my clients and family. Spermidine has earned a permanent spot on my longevity stack. Research has shown that spermidine positively impacts six of the nine hallmarks of aging, including protecting your DNA from damage as you age. Regular users also experience visible results after just one to three months, including better hair, skin, nails, and deeper sleep. I choose Primadine because it is the only spermidine supplement on the market that is free of any additives or excipients, while including a prebiotic to feed your own bacteria bacteria to make more of your own spermidine. And now Primadine also has a gluten-free version. To try Primadine, go to primadine.com and use discount code BIONAT15 to save 15% off your purchase. And now let's get back to the episode. And then the other, I think the other scenario as well, and we talked about this with a, a common client, is people who lose weight reasonably well with Ozempic for a period of time. And then all of a sudden, for reasons that nobody really understands, it stops. Like they just yeah. get, they get stuck, they plateau and that's it. The body, it's almost like the body has figured out a hack around it and it's back to hunkering down and not releasing another ounce. Um, well, and I mean, that's exactly kind of what happened. So there's this process of, well, tachyphylaxis is a term that's used when you take a medication and then after a while, your body kind of gets used to it and you need more and more of that same uh, medication to get the same effect. So that is kind of mediated, at least with semaglutide in the GLP-1 class um, by this, it's called beta arrestin activity. And so there's a, uh, a transmembrane protein basically complex that will start to engulf receptors like the GLP-1 receptor and based on its stimulation. So with semaglutide, it's got such a innate binding potential for the GLP-1 receptor that once you get that high concentration in the cells and tissues, 
the body starts to say, we've got a lot of this signal going on. Let's start this beta recruit activity. And it starts to arrest the receptor, bring it inside and uh, destroy it. Wow. And so is that a permanent effect or does it recover after a period of time? It recovers after a period of time. This is a pretty well-known kind of process that, that is monitored with most drug therapies, right? Huh. Everyone's kind of interested, okay, this works. How long does it work for? What's the mechanism by which this is not working after a while? Right. And so is that the same as receptor involution or is that a different, is that kind of like the mechanism, you basically explained what receptor involution means. It's like the, you know, if we imagine the receptor is a catcher's mitt on the membrane of the cell, it gets basically literally pulled back into the cell and it's no longer there to catch the ball. Yep. Yep. And then it goes through the, the lysosomes and it gets eaten up. But then, but then after you stop using whatever substance it is for a period of time, there's, there's a recovery of these receptors that are now back out looking for yep. stuff. So yeah, it's I mean, not a permanent damage kind of thing. It's more of a temporary. Effect. Yeah. It's a temporary adaptation, right? The body's yeah. doing it on purpose, right? And it's the same, one of the most classic examples would be opioid use and the receptor insensitivity and evolution that happens from prolonged use there, right? People have to escalate their doses, even if they feel totally normal, Yeah. but then they come off of it and it's like, a nightmare, right? Withdrawal and everything terrible because those receptors have to go back out to the front when they go through the withdrawal. Okay. And do we know how long it takes for the receptors to recover? Or is that a bit of a nah, not really well known? Not necessarily. I mean, there's, you know, there's receptor occupancy studies, like, you know, for example, Ozempic at one milligram, you know, occupies 6% of the um, receptors available, right? Whereas, I mean, yeah, I mean, but it's so effective at binding those receptors that you get a big signal transduction wow. from it. That's interesting. And, and obviously, you know, there's receptors that are not in the pancreas and the gut where they studied it. So it's not looking at, you know, brain GLP-1 activity and so forth. Right. But in general, right, one of the issues with Ozempic is that it is so potent and innately stimulating to the receptor that you get a higher beta arresting recruit signal. That's also why it's dose dependent and why you want to use lower doses as long as you can, because mm. as you go to higher doses, you're getting more receptor occupancy, and that's going to lead to more receptor involution and greater tachyphylaxis. Okay. That makes sense. That's interesting. Okay. That's cool to know. All right. So that's Ozempic. That's kind of hitting the wall, which is why Munjaro coming along is super interesting because it is, I learned this from you, a dual in Cretan. <laughs> What is it? Twin cretin? Twin cretin. Yep. Well, twin cretin is way easier to say than dual in cretin because then I was like, is it duo in cretin or tool in cretin? Anyway, um, so it's a twin cretin. So we are now leaning in on G1P and GLP1. GIP, yes. GIP. GIP and GLP1 receptors. Correct. Yep. And so this this molecule, terzepatide, is actually, it's not two peptides, right? It's It's just one that has activity at GIP receptors and GLP-1 receptors. Um, it's a full agonist at the glucose-dependent insulinotropic polypeptide. That's what GIP is. And a partial agonist at the um, GLP-1 receptor. So it's got about 51% potency um, at the GLP-1 receptor, which is why, uh, even though it's it results in the same kind of downstream signaling, and even more so than, uh, than Ozempic, it's not as potent at actually binding all the receptors, which is what equal, you know, basically allows for it to have a longer therapeutic response. Mm, interesting. And so of the, 
of all, you know, when I when I was looking at uh, Ozempic originally and looking at all the many areas that it is believed it has benefits, like in the kidneys, in the heart, in the brain, in the pancreas, like in all these different organs, does does Munjaro present do the same have those same benefits? Or is it because it's a because it's going after two different receptors? Is it less maybe protective to the pancreas or because I know that Ozempic is being studied for Alzheimer's, for example, if it might be helpful there. There's some clinical trials in general, right? So, I mean, think about it from a more a more fundamental perspective, right? Anything that reduces blood glucose, anything that reduces area under the curve insulin, right? So not that the the GLP ones are going to make your insulin spike like it should after you eat a meal, but it comes back down to baseline much faster. So the whole area under the curve for that insulin spike That's is less. Yeah. That will have a greater effect on the proliferation of the arterial um, smooth muscles and the vasculature helps with nitric oxide signaling, all these different things that promote vascular function and endothelial health. That's going to pay dividends in the long term for cerebrovasculature, for renal vasculature, for cardiovascular. Okay. So from a very fundamental perspective, it's got a huge impact on the basic um, uh, pathways to aging and, and so forth. Right. Like it's, it's like, it's just going really far upstream. Yeah. And I mean, again, also from the caloric restriction perspective, right? If you can live life at a 500 or 600 calorie deficit, you know, if that's that 25% threshold that gets you your longevity benefit and you don't have to try. Yeah. It's a win. win, it's, win, a win. win. it's like going back in time where we didn't have, excessive amounts of food in our environment that we could just kind of eat for nutrition and work and do all the different things. Yeah. No, like we literally had no choice or we didn't have also all these hyper palatable foods around that was yep. driving the overconsumption of food, which I think, you know, we are, we kind of don't talk about that as much anymore, but this is a, it's a major piece of the puzzle quite apart from having access to food. It's the hyper palatability of food that just drive those reward centers into overdrive. So, okay. So then let's talk a little bit about Munjaro. And so how is it different from Ozempic and what have you seen? Cause now you've been using it in clinic what are we now? We're kind of mid-September since May. Um, um, I think it was July. July is when we were first able to actually use it. So halfway, so like the mid was literally mid-July. So July, August, September. It's been almost three, three months. Yeah. It'll be two months. Yeah, yeah. This um, in a few days. Okay, so it's not been very long. So what have you? What are you seeing so far? I know that there's one person in particular you told me about that we've worked with together, um, who had come to a complete standstill with Ozempic and Munjaro just revved up the engine in rather dramatic way. Yeah, I mean it's it's pretty incredible. So there, fortunately, there's kind of a dose uh, equivalency, even though it's not exact, right? So basically, the the five milligram. Munjaro, which is the second dose, the first therapeutic dose, the initial is 2.5. So the first therapeutic dose at five milligrams was studied head to head against Ozempic at one milligram. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, if you go to the consistent regimen for Ozempic, it's 0.25 for a month and then 0.5 for a month. And then one is, so after two months, you get to the therapeutic dose of Ozempic, but here after the first month, you can get to the therapeutic dose of Munjaro. That being said, most of my clients were already on one or 
you know, 0.5 of Ozempic. So we just transfer them exactly to the five milligrams of Manjaro, or if they're on two milligrams, we'd go up from there. So even though it's only been two months, we've had people at therapeutic doses for those two months. Mm-hmm. Even for the people that couldn't tolerate Ozempic whatsoever, like I'm talking cyclic vomiting, like terrible. Yeah. No issues whatsoever. Like I didn't even have to give people Zofran for, for nausea. Like some people had a little bit and they're like, you know, that's totally fine. They ate something and it went away. Yeah. There's been a little bit more diarrhea with, with Moonjaro for whatever reason, which yeah. is a comforting change for people that got super constipated on Ozempic. So yeah. the, um, but net the weight loss has just been incredibly different with Moonjaro versus Ozempic. I mean, the rate at which it falls off, the dose at which it falls off. And, you know, the best part is that I haven't had that same kind of fatigue issue that I've had with Ozempic where, you know, one or two months they have to change their exercise routine, which can be annoying, especially if they're not losing the weight like they want to. Mm-hmm. And so there's just been less variables. Interesting. Yeah, because I was going to say Ozempic, I've definitely, again, in the group, seen a few people who had to stop using it because they were just exhausted. Like, for whatever reason, it just hit them really hard in that way. And I remember you saying to me that with the Munjaro, there just seems to be fewer of those side effects of the gastric, you know, the nausea, the sickness, and the fatigue. Yeah, and I think part of that's primarily due to the less, um, the smaller GLP-1 activity right because it gives you most of the cgrp which is in my opinion what leads to most of the adverse kind of alarm going off centrally speaking okay i have had a couple of people vomit the first day which was interesting um the the potential for the max concentration can be like eight to 72 hours after taking the shot so on ozempic it was generally like you know after three or four days that's kind of when you have your highest probability of the worst side effects. Whereas with Munjaro, um, I had to go back and look at this because I was like, why are you having such issues the first day? Cause I usually don't tell people to take Zofran until the day after. Um, so these people told me like, Hey, I, I took it. I threw up just once. It wasn't terrible, but it was, it just took me by <laughs> surprise. Um, and then after that, they had no issues, but that first eight hours for some people, they can get a higher concentration of it in their blood than their expecting to right and then it just sits there it just stays at that high concentration like is it because i know that with ozempic the half-life is what like four days or something yeah same four four or five days and this one's still also four or five days but the c max again is earlier in that shift than it is with the ozempic so it's like a fast car it gets from zero to 100 in less time (laughs) potentially right i mean potentially yeah later on well, but it doesn't mean you're going to be sick. It just means like, for whatever reason, it's almost like it has a, it has, it has more activity at a higher level because it gets there so much faster than the Ozempic. So, I mean, arguably I would say that it's probably better to have somewhere in between that, right? Cause if you go from zero to 60 in four hours, you're going to get, even if it's that 3% receptor occupancy, that's going to be enough to kind of instigate an issue. Right especially if you start at a higher dose than you otherwise would, like if we don't escalate it from the 2.5 going forward. Interesting. And so, so far, are you seeing many people that need to go beyond the 5.0? Cause it can, it's up to 15 milligrams, right? Is yeah, I don't have anyone. At first, I have a few at 12 and a half, a few at 10, mostly five or 7.5. 
Interesting. Okay. Well, that's, that's interesting. Is there anything else about it that we, that we should talk about? Like, is it in how it's different or better or, I mean, well, so- part of, part of the reason it is so much better is because it's got the other incretin um, component to it. So GIP receptors are a little bit more diffuse. There's a lot more on the actual adipose tissue. So one of its perceived differences is that it has a better insulin uh, sensitizing effect on the adipose tissue than Ozempic does. Um, It increases this hormone called, or not hormone, but this, uh, this hepatic or this hormone sensitive lipase that also instigates the reduction of uh, triglycerides from those VLDLs and LDLs and kind of helps export those and be used for energy. Um, And also just the effect at the hypothalamus too, for greater sympathetic tone to the fat tissue. Nice. So I think across the board, the combination of GIP and GLP, obviously it's the difference because it's actually got less activity at GLP-1. So the addition of the GIP is, is what makes it. The interesting thing to me though, is, you know, they've made GIP agonists for diabetes to see if it did anything and it got scrapped because by itself, it actually had no positive effect. So it's with the GLP. So it's the combination of the two that's somehow the secret sauce. Yes. Interesting. And so you mentioned VLDL and LDL. So it actually improves cholesterol profile for people. Yeah, it does. So it, it decreases this protein called APOC3, which is a, is a lipoprotein on um, APOB particles. It actually reduces their clearance in the liver. So they hang around for a long period of time. They get oxidized super easy. So people that have an APOC3 um, genetic variant that actually reduces APOC3 clearance or increases APOC3 translation and transcription. They have these, um, it's a lipoprotein problem where they make too many of these and that actually increases the risk of atherosclerosis a a, a significant amount. Hmm. And so far there's no way to really drop that except for, I think the the fibrate class does a pretty good job, higher dose omega threes, but they're also making these single, um, these micro RNA medications that will go after the synthesis of APOC3 in the liver and reduce it that way. All that to say, it reduces triglycerides, it reduces ApoB, and it reduces the large fraction of the VLDL particles and the small fraction of the LDL particles. All good. All good things, especially if you look at cholesterol as an actual important metric, but that's a different argument. But so could it have any use as, like instead of using, for someone whose cholesterol is not crazy out of control, could you say that this potentially might be a different, better option to see if it might be enough to bring those cholesterol numbers in line? No, I wouldn't say that. I mean, I would say that it's, it's safe to say that by improving body composition and improving metabolism and reducing fatty liver and all those different things, that might be the mechanism by which it's actually doing it. Right. But, you know, they noted in these, in these studies that drop in these metrics were important, how it happened, whether it's direct mm-hmm. from kind of genetic transcription issue, or it's a, a secondary effect of losing weight and, and reducing triglyceride uh, storage into the liver and so forth. Interesting. Okay. Well, that's, I mean, so again, we've got a lot of other side wins on this compound as, as we do on Ozempic. So 
It's interesting, you know, so for, for metabolic disease, like these compounds are really become, like they're really game changers for metabolic yeah. imbalances. <clears throat> and even for people, again, just from an anti-aging or longevity perspective, it's going to be, I think, pretty obvious that this is going to be in the toolkit for most people. If it's not every week, you know, once a month, something like that, just to work these mechanisms, especially as you get older and you just have less signaling anyway. You yeah. Know, again, we've kind of talked about this quality of life, quantity of life. If we're not designed to live this long, but we're going to live this long, it's going to be necessary to find things that promote optimal organ and tissue functioning as we age anyway. Right. And so this is kind of like in the toolkit of caloric restriction. Yes. As a, as a, as a tool um, and makes it so that you're not the grumpy monkey that only that got 30% less calories. You're actually quite fine with it and happy. Yep. <laughs> Yep, absolutely. And then this is, if you just use it by itself, that's one thing. If we're using other tools like the SGLT2 class, if we're using any kind of a stimulant or, you know, thyroid meds or hormones, like there's a, a lot of different things to complete the comprehensivity of the program for body physique management and overall, you know, physique. If you're a listener of this podcast, you're probably actively looking for ways to maximize your daily regimens and protocols. And if you haven't yet added nitric oxide to your daily wellness routine, you've got to stop and listen to the rest of this message. Throughout your body, there are over 60,000 miles of blood vessels. Nitric oxide is responsible for circulating blood to all those vessels through vasodilation. But as we age, we make less nitric oxide naturally, circulation becomes less efficient, meaning the blood carrying critical oxygen, glucose, and nutrients just gives and getting to all those miles. Berkeley Life is my go-to supplement for supporting nitric oxide levels in myself, my family, and my clients. Their daily supplement provides a powerful and precise dose of dietary nitrates, the building blocks of nitric oxide, for your body to make its own nitric oxide throughout the day. I've noticed such a difference in my energy levels, my stamina, and my recovery time. The more I learn about nitric oxide's role in the body, including its impact on oxidative stress levels and proper hormone balance, the more I encourage all my listeners and clients to incorporate it into their regimens. You can access Berkeley Life's nitric oxide support supplements by going to berkeleylife.com and using practitioner code NIDDBL to place your order when you register and check out. You will also save 10% off your first order. Once again, berkeleylife.com, practitioner code NIDDBL. And now let's get back to the show. To finish off, because we've probably been talking for almost an hour now, and you're going to have to go soon, and I'm going to have to jump at some point. Let's just spend our last few minutes talking a little bit about the foundation stuff that you work on with your patients before you go here. I mean, you might you might introduce these right out of the gate because somebody really needs it and they need that you know, they almost need that, that ray of light that says, yes, we can move the needle for you. And that gives them hope and, and encouragement and makes them feel happy. But I just, you know, I, now I keep saying this to people over and over again, but I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what is the foundation work you're doing alongside this, because, you know, with whacked out hormones and all the other things, even though it might help a little bit, it's not going to do its thing to to the fullest and you're not going to get to your point you're not going to get the longevity benefits necessarily yeah so you know i'll say i've been a little bit more um lenient with following a particular programming and protocol so beforehand i would make sure that number one everyone gets a dexa scan before and that's really just for me i don't care if they want to look at it or not i just want to see <laughs> at the end of this how much fat you lose how much muscle you lose so i can have a better analysis of how to tell people 
Um, so say someone comes in for their initial appointment and weight loss is at the top of their list, right? Assuming that the use of this tool is not going to make things worse, which I haven't seen anything get worse. Um, I will get the ball rolling for prior authorizations and getting everything set up. So we can start that kind of as soon as they get it because they're getting blood work that same day. So they're going to get blood work that accurately reflects where they are at baseline. Mm -hmm. However, in the meantime, they can have two or three weeks of starting something, feeling better, moving the needle. So we have more to talk about at follow-up, but also we can interpret what their blood work looks like at baseline and say, okay, well, you've lost 10 pounds already. Some of these metrics actually might've improved. We don't need to actually do anything to change those metrics until we know what's going to happen just by weight loss. So like you said, we could start, you know, probably five to six different supplements just for mitigating the side effects of being overweight. Yeah. Um, you know, if they have high triglycerides, for example, um, but they're overweight, is it because they're eating too much fat or carbohydrate, or is it just because they can't depose the triglyceride anywhere, but their liver or their adipose tissue. So it kind of helps me figure out what do I really need to treat mm -hmm. when there's so much of an issue with metabolism and body habitus that if we just get that out of the way, you know, they might sleep better because they're not apneic at night. There's just so many different things that happen as a comorbid presentation with being obese that it's almost unfair of me to treat those things by themselves when they're still obese. Right. No, for sure. But what about things like hormones? Like, are you going to look at that right out of the gate? Like if somebody's, yeah. you know, the, whether it's a man or a woman, if their hormones are kind of really whacked out, like we're not going to expect this to have much of an impact on that front, but no, optimizing no, the hormones might even help this to have more benefit. Yeah. So there's age brackets for sure. And I mean, obviously when, when males come in and they're whatever age, but they're super overweight, then testosterone is typically going to come back low, whether or not it's because they're overweight or unhealthy or because they have a gonadal or, you know, a hypothalamic issue. I don't know at that point. So it still yeah. might be better to say, okay, do this stuff first before yeah. we do an intervention, like, you know, hormones or whatever. Now, if we've got a menopausal lady, like that's, that's going to be a number one thing too. Right. So it's kind of common sense at that point, right? If, yeah. if they're overweight, they're not sleeping well, they can't go to the gym, they have knee pain, all that kind of stuff. Throwing testosterone in the mix is probably not the smartest thing to do at first. It might be, we just have to take each one by itself, but it's an explanation. Say, look, if we get you to lose weight, especially when people aren't super on fire, to just start things that they're going to do for the rest of their life. If we get weight down, if they can get back in the gym, if they can start moving heavy weight, if they don't have as much pain, if they can eat better, if they have better relationships, because they don't hate themselves, you know, wait, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's such a domino effect that it's, again, it's a wisdom thing, right? Mm -hmm. It would be unwise to do all these different things just based on their presentation, instead of look at things from a fundamental avenue of what is the biggest reason you are not getting to where you want to be in your health related goals. Yeah. Yeah. No, and this, and this is, and this is the mover and the shaker. So it is and also just people that buy in, you know, I mean, if, if, if someone's done and I see this all the time, you know, they, they did keto, they did paleo, they did, you know, carnivore, they did all these different good diets that work for a lot of people, but it didn't work for them. And so then they come in, they're like, you know, I don't know what's wrong with me. I did what my buddy did. I did this, I did that. Um, and again, it's not their fault. Yeah. 
Yeah, and so no, I think we understand that there, there are things that can move the needle in the right direction. And then we're going to use those. And when they see that that's true, one, they trust me more and two, they trust themselves more. And then they can get back on the habits that they already had established and see more benefit. Absolutely. And there's a thing I know for sure with Ozempic, and I'm sure it's the same with Munjaro, where if you're include, if you're improving the uptake of glucose and skeletal muscle over time, it's going to make it easier to exercise. For sure. On top of having less weight to carry around. Like there, you get this crazy snowballing effect of all, all arrows start to line up and point in the same direction kind of thing. Yeah. And again, you know, if you're, if you're calorically deplete, you're running AMPK, you're doing all these other different autophagy pathways, you're obviously losing a ton of weight. You have increased, you know, adrenergic stimulation of fat tissue. There's so many things going in the right direction for autophagy and for, you know, the turnover of just crappy tissue that it would be like doing a prolonged or some other kind of fast where you're still doing caloric intake, you know, with amino acids and collagen and all these different things that are easy to digest. Yeah. But you're not pounding the hyperpalatable foods or even, you know, again, because people don't even do that, right? I mean, they're, they're eating healthy. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, the, the heartbreakers are the people that are basically eating well and just yeah. not getting any, and there it's like they're not, they're not getting any traction for sure. I mean, there's plenty of people who don't eat healthy and don't get traction, but, but the heartbreakers really, I mean, you know, we want to help them all, but at the end of the day, the ones that really, you know, the ones that you, you feel really bad for the people who are just sitting there going like i'm i'm doing everything and it's not working yeah. we come across those people every day for sure um there was something else i wanted to oh are is the, is the, are there's the same black box warnings on munjaro as there are for ozempic so yep. thyroid like people with a history of thyroid cancer and or a slight risk of developing pancreatitis for reasons that are as of yet slightly unclear yeah, i mean so the the pancreatitis history isn't even a absolute contraindication. No, right. It's only getting pancreatitis while taking it that it becomes a contraindication. Right. Because it drove... That's not even a black box. I think the other one is, it's like malignant endocrine neoplasia, something like that. It's it's basically like an adrenal tumor or some some kind of um, increased norepinephrine release or something like that because of the increased synthetic output from the GLP-1 class. So, so would that be for someone who has some kind of adrenal issue would be something to watch no, out for very, or it just, it can very, happen? No, it's, it's a super rare condition. Okay. So for most people doesn't have to be, it's not an issue, but does speak to being monitored by a health professional while you're going, while you're using these substances, not just willy nilly throwing them at your body. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, certainly. Um, I was going to say one more thing. The, the change in HRV and resting heart rate is the same for both. So, but, okay, so that is something to mention, right? So for people who are tracking those metrics, whether it's with Biostrap or Aura, and I've no, I mean, I definitely noticed it. My HRV, I, I gave up. Yeah, so I thought most people would just stop looking at it. I mean, they're going to get, if if they're data junkies for their aura or whoop, I mean, yeah. it's kind of a, it's almost a contraindication in and of itself not to start this. Well, if, if, if what you care about is the data more than your results, yeah. But basically your heart, resting heart rate is going to go up, your HRV is going to go down, and that's just the way. Although I have had periods, it's interesting, you know, there were periods while I was using Ozempic 
where my HRV was actually pretty good. And this was more towards the tail end of when I used it, where somehow I guess my body, to your point, like adapted and my HR, I was still getting the benefits. I was at a very low dose, like 0.25 milligrams once a week, but my HRV was starting to recover. My resting heart rate was no longer quite as much higher as it used to be. Like now that I, you know, I went off it for a couple months, my resting heart rate started to get back into the high forties. And I was like, geez, you know, it's almost too low at yeah. that point, but it's, um, yeah, I mean, I'll have a couple of nights where it, it jumps for whatever reason, but you know, again, as far as the metrics of quality, I mean, I'm sleeping well, I recover well, haven't injured myself. It's, you know, the, the difference between parasympathetic activity and sympathetic balances. I don't, I don't think it's as sturdy a, a topic to, to monitor when, when people are generally healthy. Yeah, no, I got you. All right. Well, I'm thinking we did a pretty good job here. Is there anything that we've left off, sir? Or do you, uh, <laughs> Um, I mean, nothing, nothing really that rings a bell for me. I mean, again, at this point we have just a couple months under our belt. It's, it's been super phenomenal with, with the people, especially that I was disappointed with Ozempic for not working, but even for the people that Ozempic was working and they had to just deal with some of the side effects, switching over no side effects is better than, than some, right? Yeah, so for it's sure. been, a, been a game changer and I'm looking forward to the next iteration that will also have a glucagon agonist too. Ooh, that's coming. It's that coming down the pipes. Am I going to get another text? It's here. Probably <laughs> a couple of years away, but I think, uh, I think that one's primarily being studied for the, the neurodegenerative diseases. Okay. Interesting. All right. Well, I think maybe what we'll do is in a few months, we'll maybe circle back and I'm sure there'll be something else to talk about or some other thing that pops up. Um, but in the meantime, it sounds like, uh, if you can get your insurance company to cover it, cause these things are pricey. Like they do not come cheap. Um, if you can convince your insurance company to cover it for you, then um, these are really beautiful tools to have in the toolkit. Well, and funny enough, you know, Monjaro has been super easy to get covered. It has? Mm-hmm. Yep. And they have a $25 manufacturer coupon. So if you get the prescription for it, if it's covered or not, then the Lily will pick up the, the bill essentially for, you know, if you have commercial insurance, you get the prescription, it'll be 25 bucks. Wow. That's impressive. All right. All right, sir. Well, thank you so much. Why don't we tell people you've got some exciting stuff coming down the pipes at your end. Personally, you're opening up your own shop. By the time this podcast airs, you will have your own shop. So maybe you want to tell people where they can find you and how to reach you and we can swamp you again. Um, yeah, so I'll have a new website up. It's designhealth.org. Um, that'll be kind of the main hub for, for reaching out and seeing if, you know, if you qualify as a candidate for our program and so forth, but you know, it'll, it'll be a good place to, to gather insight from, from what we've done as far as newsletters and so forth. But, you know, as far as anything else where I kind of hang out, I mean, I have an Instagram, but I'm never on it. So that would be the major point of contact. Um, if anyone's interested in, in reaching out before, you know, all that are skipping the, the website route. Um, my admin is my wife and uh, her name is Cheyenne at designhealth.org. She is the gatekeeper. So. Yeah. And she has a vested interest in keeping your life in order. So, you know, <laughs> what, guys, um, 
when Caleb has room, she will let you in and not a minute before. (laughs) (laughs) I've learned that by sending people going, oh, come on, can you get in sooner? And she's like, "Uh, no, as a matter of fact, no, they cannot. So uh, she's actually really good at her job. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, it's been nice because I have a hard time saying no and she has a very easy time saying no. So yeah, no, you, you guys balance each other off perfectly. So the spelling of all of these things will be in the show notes, people. And Caleb, you are located in Austin, Texas, but you are able to practice telemedicine in a number of other states. I'm sure that'll be listed on your website. We're not going to bore people with it right now. Should put that on there. Yeah, that would be a good idea because, you know, it'll save Cheyenne a whole lot of conversations. (laughs) She's probably got a template somewhere. It's the hotkey that puts the states up there. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time again, as always. It's always a total pleasure speaking with you, and I look forward to the next time we get to do so. All right. Sounds good, Nat. Have a good rest of your day. You too. Thanks. No problem. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to leave us a five-star review on iTunes because that's what helps us to be heard and to be seen. If you'd like to connect with me directly, or if you'd like to leave any comments, or if you have any questions about this episode, please reach out to me directly through my website, natnidham.com. And of course, if you're not already a member of the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Community on Facebook, that's where you'll find me every day. It's a short application, just answer a couple of questions and you're in and interfacing with other amazing biohackers. Thanks again, and we'll look forward to seeing you on the next episode.